I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting my podcast. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. And I'd also like to thank a brand new sponsor, Theragun. And now you can try Theragun for 30 days, starting at only $199. Just go to therabody.com slash Peter right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. After a small 236-point bounce on Monday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped another 652 points Today, that means it's now fallen by over 1,300 points in the last three trading days. It all got started on Black Friday, Black and Blue Friday in the markets as a result of concerns over the Omicron variant of the COVID virus. But the reality is the market has been extremely overvalued and maybe Virus fears were the pin, but the fact of the matter remains, the market is and has been a gigantic bubble for a long time in search of a pin. So when it finally finds one, it's not really the pin's fault. It's the bubble's fault because all bubbles eventually find a pin. So it doesn't really matter what ends up being the pin What matters is the bubble. And I think investors are beginning to acknowledge the fact that the overpriced stock market is completely dependent on the Fed. It's the Fed's monetary supports upon which the entire stock market rests. In fact, every time when people have to justify these insane valuations, it's always in comparison to interest rates. It's the artificially low interest rates that justify these inflated stock market values. So if you take that away, well, then there's nothing beneath the market but air. And in fact, Jerome Powell had an opportunity today because he testified jointly with Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen before the United States Senate on the U.S. economy and what policies the administration and the Fed would be pursuing to help the economy. And I think the hearing was called as a result of the Omicron variant. I'm not sure that. Maybe it was scheduled anyway, but it seemed like everybody came together because of the new concerns raised by this new variant. And number one, right off the bat, and I pointed this out before, I don't like the chairman of the Federal Reserve and the secretary of the Treasury appearing together on the same podium to field questions because it's like they're working together, but they're not supposed to work together. In fact, at times like this, it's extremely important that they not work together, that they not cooperate because in many respects, They are working at cross purposes. The Secretary of the Treasury is an appointee of President Biden and is a member of the Biden administration. And the most important goal of the Biden administration 
is to reelect Joe Biden or at a minimum, Kamala Harris, who, by the way, is the least popular vice president, I think, in history. I don't know. I mean, if it counts like a guy like Spiro Agnew before he had to resign uh, in disgrace, I'm not sure about that, but maybe so, because I read these articles that she's the most unpopular vice president ever. But be that as it may, the goal of the administration is to reelect the incumbents. And so what's driving policy is short term because they're only guided by the elections. And in fact, right now, the goal of the Biden administration is the midterms. They want to try to save the House and the U.S. Senate, keep them under Democratic control because, A, that makes it easier to get their priorities through Congress, but B, maintaining control of Congress may make it easier to maintain control of the White House two years later. So they're looking for politically expedient solutions to these problems. They want to put band-aids on this cancer. They don't care if it gets worse. They just don't want it visible when voters go to the polls. But that is not what the Fed is supposed to be doing. The Fed is supposed to be blind to politics. It's above the fray. It is independent. It is supposed to be making policy for the long-term good of the nation. And the only policy it's supposed to be making is monetary policy designed to preserve the integrity of the currency, the purchasing power of the dollar, price stability, even though they now define it as prices rising by a little bit more than 2% per year. In theory, that's supposed to be their goal, not to reelect whoever happens to be in the White House or whoever happens to be in Congress. So when you're at a situation like this, you don't want cooperation between the Fed and the administration. You want the Fed to act as a break against policies that the administration would otherwise pursue for its own political interests that are not in the long-term economic interest of the United States. So if they want to stimulate the economy because it's good for their reelection, if they want to spend a bunch of money, it's not up to the Fed to just accommodate that desire. The Fed needs to stay independent, and that's why they should never have these joint press conferences. I mean, if they want to appear independently, if you want to have one day where the Secretary of the Treasury is there taking questions, and you want to have another day where the chairman of the Federal Reserve, that's okay, because at least it looks like they're independent. But when you put them together and they're seated next to each other, even if they have to space out because they're trying to maintain adequate distance, right, because they want to be safe from COVID, but even if they're not directly next to each other, they're still on the same table. They're acting as if they're playing on the same team, and they're not supposed to be. And especially when you have an inflation rate as high as the one we have right now, given that the Fed's policies should be fighting inflation, which means by definition, its policy is at odds with the administration, which is looking for ways to stimulate the economy and finance increased government spending. You can't do both. And that's why this is not a good sign. And the market should be reacting to this. They should see through this charade and realize that there is no real Fed independence. And at the end of the day, Jerome Powell is just another 
part of the Biden administration. After all, he just had to kiss Biden's butt to get reappointed, right? Obviously, Biden would have preferred Lyle Brainerd take over as Fed chairman, but A, he didn't want to take the political risk of having the economy fall under the watch of his appointee. He wanted to leave a Trump official in there so that he could blame Trump if something goes wrong. But also, I'm sure he got the assurances that he needs from Powell that Powell's got his back and Powell is going to keep the printing presses going as long as necessary. But Powell had an opportunity to talk up the markets today, save the market, because after all, the markets had already declined quite a bit on Friday. And despite that bounce on Monday, they were still down Tuesday morning prior to Powell making his statement and then fielding the questions from the senators. So he had an opportunity to kind of smooth things over and reassure the markets because his prepared statement, which had been released earlier, left people a little confused because Powell acknowledged that the Omicron variant had the potential of slowing the economy and therefore the Fed's growth forecasts would call into question because of the Omicron virus. But at the same time, he acknowledged that this Omicron variant, because it may result in fewer people going to work, may exacerbate the labor shortage and therefore the supply problems that are already in the pipeline. And therefore, the effect of this variant may be that consumer prices rise even more. So now the Fed is saying, hey, wait a minute, we've got two problems. We've got economic weakness, but even more upward pressure on prices. That's stagflation, even though Powell himself didn't actually use the word stagflation to describe the dilemma. That's basically the dilemma he described, weakening economic growth and more upward pressure on prices. So that left the markets wondering, okay, well, what's the Fed going to do? Is the Fed going to ease policy? because the economy is weakening? Or is the Fed going to tighten policy because inflation is accelerating? That was the question. And Powell had the opportunity to answer that question, and he really didn't answer it. But based on what he said, the markets answered it, and that's why the Dow was down 650 points, because they interpreted what Powell said and what he didn't say as being hawkish. Now, one of the things that Powell actually said specifically had to do with transitory inflation. Because up until now, that's been the Fed's story. Inflation is transitory, and they've been sticking to that. And everybody has been on script about transitory inflation. Well, today, for the first time, Powell basically admitted that inflation is not transitory. Here is exactly what Powell said about transitory inflation. This is in quotes, quote, it's probably a good time to retire that word and try to explain more clearly what we mean. Okay, so it's time to retire the word transitory. Why? Well, because it's not true and it's never been true. That's the Fed's way of admitting that it was wrong, right? Because we're retiring the word because we got it wrong. 
because the word was never appropriate, and that's why we're retiring it. But I also think it was funny because not only is Powell admitting that he was wrong without actually coming out and saying, I was wrong, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, Arthur Fonzarelli from Happy Days. Most people are probably too young to remember that, but Arthur Fonzarelli could never say he was wrong. And whenever he tried to say that, it would be like, I was you know, he could never get the words I was wrong out of his mouth. So he would just slur a little bit and say, I was woo-woo-woo, and that meant he was wrong. Well, Powell's not actually saying he was wrong, but hey, let's just retire this word. And then he said that we need to come up with a new way to explain more clearly what they meant. No, that's the last thing the Fed wants to do. The problem is the Fed was clear when they said inflation was transitory because What transitory means is kind of temporary. It's just not a real problem. We don't have to worry about it. It's going to go away. The problem isn't that the Fed wasn't clear. The problem was that the Fed was wrong. That was the problem. And the reason that the Fed became unclear is because when it first became obvious that the Fed was wrong, that's when the Fed tried to change the definition of transitory so that they could still look right. That's what created the confusion. It was the Fed trying to confuse the public as to what transitory means. Now what they want to do is come up with a new lie to confuse the public again because the transitory lie ain't working anymore because they've twisted it into too big a pretzel and now they need something else. Between funding, marketing, operations, and product, being a founder means you have to wear a lot of hats. Let Indeed take the recruiting and hiring hat off your head so you can better focus on more pressing matters. Indeed is the perfect hiring partner that gets you what you really need, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible. With Indeed, you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Let Indeed help you hire the right people right now. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Thanks to Indeed's virtual interviews, You can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place using Indeed. No need to install anything extra. Indeed's virtual interview works right from your browser. Interview virtually with no downloads, plugins, or purchases. You can do it all in one place with Indeed. One thing I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. Finding great talent doesn't have to be your second job. You can hire faster and better than ever when you use Indeed. And you can get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. Indeed.com Peter. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Now, Powell did, though, come kind of close to admitting that he was wrong, but he didn't really admit it because he was asked about, hey, you know, inflation, it's constantly running hotter than you thought. Like, what did you get wrong, right? In hindsight now, where were you wrong? And so what Powell said was that, well, we kind of only got one thing wrong, but you can't fault us for that because nobody could have possibly got this right. And what Powell said the Fed got wrong was it didn't see the problems in the supply chain happening. And after all, according to Powell, nobody saw this coming. And it certainly wasn't in any of our models because how could you model something as crazy 
as supply chain bottlenecks and shortages. So since nobody could have possibly known that this was going to happen, well, clearly, you know, since our models didn't incorporate something that nobody could have known, well, that's why we were wrong in thinking inflation was transitory because, you know, you had this unknown thing at a left field, nobody could have possibly predicted. So in a way, we really weren't wrong because, you know, we're not gods, right? We can't just see into the future. We don't have a crystal ball, right? So you can't expect us to do the impossible and foresee something that nobody could possibly even imagine. So, but for that, you know, we got everything right about inflation, but, you know, you can't hold us responsible for something like this, which is so laughable because A, it's not the only thing the Fed got wrong. The Fed got a lot more wrong than supply. In fact, what it really got wrong was demand, right? Because this is not about supply only. It's about massive demand. Now, where did that demand come from? Well, it came from the Fed and it came from other central banks that flooded the economy with money. People who were sitting at home not working got checks from the government to go out and spend it. And in fact, the U.S. government told a lot of people, hey, don't use that money to pay your rent because your landlord can't evict you. Just go buy more goods made in China. Run the deficit up even more. So it was government policy, both the Fed policy and congressional policy that combined to create all sorts of demand. And the demand was also way underestimated by the Fed. But getting back to supply, to say that these supply shortages were something that nobody foresaw and that nobody could have possibly have foreseen because it's so out of left field, it's so crazy that nobody could have possibly predicted it, is a farce on its own because it wasn't impossible to have figured this out in advance. In fact, it was impossible not to have seen this coming. This was the most obvious problem and how the Fed could have missed it is beyond me, which makes me think they didn't miss it. They're just lying now and pretending they didn't see it because they can't possibly have been so blind. I described this supply problem precisely from day one. You go back and you listen to my podcasts from March of 2020, right? When COVID first hit and the Fed announced its response when it slashed interest rates down to zero and relaunched QE, what specifically did I say was going to happen? I said this was the worst thing the Fed could do because COVID was an inflationary event in that it was sidelining production. I mean, after all, how can you shut down the economy, close factories, furlough workers, and then somehow be surprised by the fact that there's a shortage of stuff? I talked about that. I specifically said there were going to be widespread shortages of stuff due to the shutdown of the economy. And of course, I'm not brilliant to figure that out. You have to be an idiot not to see that. It's not that I'm so smart. It's just that they'd have to be so dumb. And I don't think they could possibly be that dumb. I just think now they're telling a lie to try to explain why they got inflation wrong by trying to claim that they really didn't get it wrong, that it was only because of this crazy thing that nobody could have possibly seen coming when anybody with even a small amount of common sense 
would have seen it coming. My policy prescription at the time. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. What I said the correct monetary policy would have been back in March of 2020 was to contract the money supply. The opposite of what the Fed was doing. Why did I say the Fed needed to contract the money supply? Because production was contracting. The economy was generating less output. And if you're producing less stuff, prices are going to go up unless you shrink the quantity of money so that the supply of money goes down along with the supply of goods, which was the original purpose of the Federal Reserve to provide the economy with an elastic money supply. And that meant a money supply that contracted as the economy contracted and expanded as the economy expanded. But the Fed did the opposite of what it was intended to do. It expanded the money supply into a contracting economy, the most boneheaded of all monetary policies. And I described in detail why this was so inflationary, because people were going to have more money to buy less stuff. And so the only thing that could happen is the price of that stuff would go up. So to say that nobody could have seen this coming, right, is disingenuous at best, but an outright lie at worst. But what the markets really should be asking, or investors, is if the Fed got this wrong, which they clearly did, what else are they getting wrong? And of course, remember, one of the reasons I said from the beginning that the Fed was wrong about inflation being transitory, I said it's the same way they were wrong about the subprime problems being contained. I said inflation was as transitory as subprime was contained. And I was right again. Of course, I was right in real time when the Fed was saying subprime was contained. And I said it wasn't. I said subprime was the tip of a huge iceberg, and that's exactly what it was. Well, I've been saying the same thing about inflation, that the inflation that we've seen thus far is not only not transitory, but the tip of an inflation iceberg. And the Fed still doesn't acknowledge the existence of that iceberg. But because Powell uttered these words, because he said we need to retire the word transitory, Immediately, when those words were spoken, the dollar index was down about 70 points. It was a big decline, and it rallied back to positive. Now, it didn't close positive, but it rallied to positive. Gold, which was up about $20 an ounce before Powell made that statement, sold off negative and closed negative. It was down about 10 bucks on the day. More than a $30 reversal in the price of gold simply because... Powell acknowledged that inflation wasn't transitory. In fact, he did more than that. He actually admitted that inflation is widespread, that it has now moved beyond 
just those few commodities that were linked to the reopening, which of course was a lie when he said it, and I pointed that out, but now he's admitting that it's broader inflation, that the threat is bigger than he thought, and we need to deal with it. And that is what scared the hell out of the markets and caused the sell-off in gold, the bid in the dollar, and the sell-off in the stock market because the stock market was trying to rally back until those words derailed that rally and sent the market crashing back down to new lows. In fact, gold extended its early morning gains following a much weaker than expected November Chicago PMI. The consensus forecast was for 68.4, which would have matched the prior month. But instead, we came out with a number of 61.8, well below the lowest extreme of the consensus range, which was 67. So this much weaker than expected Chicago PMI caused a strong gold market to strengthen further. Now, what the markets don't seem to differentiate is the difference between talking about a problem and actually doing something to solve it. Because all Powell did is acknowledge that inflation is a bigger threat. But he did not actually talk about how the Fed would alter its policy in light of that. Now, he did acknowledge that the FOMC may consider tapering a bit quicker so that maybe they'll finish the taper one or two months sooner than they originally expected. But that's it. That's all Powell said. And that isn't even a commitment. And even if they follow through, it amounts to nothing because what they were doing in the first place amounted to nothing. Because in the face of this larger inflation threat, the Fed continues to pour gasoline on the fire. Just because they're pouring a little bit less gasoline doesn't change the nature of what they're doing. You're not going to put out a fire by pouring less gasoline on it. You actually have to start putting it out, and they're not even close to doing that. Don't let the stress of daily life weigh on your body. Whether you're an elite athlete or someone like me just trying to make it through the day tension-free, Theragun can really help. I've teamed up with Theragun and they're offering their Theragun for 30 days starting at only $199. So go to therabody.com Peter and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. Theragun is a handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combo of depth, speed, and power. And it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. The Gen 4 Theragun doesn't just feel good. It gets to the source of the pain by releasing the tension. Using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. So whether you want to treat your muscle tension from working out to repair an injury or just to release the stress of everyday life, there's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. The OLED screen and design makes you feel like you're holding something from the future. So just go to their site and check it out. And the Theragun app learns from your behavior and suggests guided routines. I started using Theragun myself over a year ago when I had another routine injury of my lower back. I've had these problems for decades at this point. And it was actually a friend of mine who, after I informed him of my problem, he said, hey, you got to come over to my house. I have something that'll fix you right up. And I went over, used the Theragun, and it worked so well that I immediately went out and I bought my own. I now use it almost every day, not just when I get those lower back problems, 
but after I work out, I always want to use the Theragun on my muscles so that they're not as sore after a workout. But don't take my word for it. Get yourself a Theragun and see for yourself. And now you can try Theragun for 30 days, starting at only $199. So go to therabody.com slash Peter right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's therabody.com slash Peter. therabody.com slash Peter. And in fact, one of the senators specifically asked Powell what he would do about this inflation problem. Specifically, what is the Fed going to do? And the only answer that Powell provided was the Fed will use its tools. Oh, really? What tools is the Fed going to use? Powell's not specific about that because I think Powell knows the Fed doesn't have any tools that it's actually willing to use because the only tools that they have to fight inflation will also destroy the economy, at least the bubble economy that the Fed has spent decades inflating. In fact, there was some discussion about interest rates and the effect rising interest rates might have on the economy. You had a couple of senators, Republican senators, pointing this out, and you had both Powell and Yellen completely dismissing the risk to the economy of rising interest rates, even though they acknowledge they may rise a little. They said, well, we don't really have to worry because they're not going to rise very much. They're just going to stay historically low in real terms. How do they know that? Why should they stay historically low? Maybe what we've seen recently is an aberration. Maybe that's what's transitory is really low interest rates. Maybe where we're headed is back to normal interest rates. In fact, more likely, given the enormity of the debt that we have, we should have high interest rates. In fact, that's where we're headed. We're headed from a very low interest rate environment to a very high interest rate environment. And that is toxic as an environment if you've got a lot of debt, which is why the Federal Reserve is doing everything it can to prevent that from happening. And that's why Powell lied when he was asked the question about whether or not the Fed considered the cost to the U.S. government of servicing the national debt when making interest rate policy. Now, of course, the Fed considers that. How could it not? It's the elephant in the room. But Powell completely ignored the question. In fact, I guess it wasn't a lie. He just dodged the question by not answering it. And then the senator just never bothered to press him, although part of his question had to do with whether the Fed considered the creditworthiness of the U.S. government, because obviously if interest rates really rise, that's when the credit quality of U.S. Treasuries comes into question because at higher interest rates, the federal government can't service its debt. But then Powell did answer that question and said, no, he never considers the credit worthiness of the U.S. government because he said that will never be called into question, that basically no matter how high the debt is, no matter how high interest rates rise, the U.S. government will always be able to pay. Really? How? Where's it going to get the money? The only way it's going to get the money is if the Fed supplies it. But if Powell says that the Fed doesn't care about the interest expense to the U.S. government of servicing its debt, 
if the Fed is going to raise interest rates regardless of the impact on the budget, then how can he make that statement? Because if Powell is really willing to jack up interest rates without any consideration for the cost of the U.S. government, well, then the credit worthiness of the U.S. government will come into question because it won't be able to pay. Think about it. We've got a almost $30 trillion debt. Well, let's say the Fed had to raise interest rates up to 5%. Well, if the Fed had to finance $30 trillion debt with 5% interest rates, that's $1.5 trillion per year just in interest payments on the national debt. That's at least a trillion more than it's costing right now, and that's only at 5%. What if the Fed had to go to 10%? Now you're at $3 trillion. But what if in the process of raising interest rates to 10%, we have a massive recession because everybody has to pay higher interest rates, not just the U.S. government, corporations, Americans, consumers, homeowners, the entire economy would implode beneath the weight of a 10% interest rate. In fact, it would implode beneath the weight of a 5% interest rate. So the government's budget deficits would be skyrocketing Where would the government get the money to pay the interest on the debt if the economy is in recession and government tax revenues are falling? Are they going to raise taxes in a recession? How? And there's no way they can even raise them by enough to make the payments. The only way the U.S. government could possibly service the debt in an environment where interest rates were way up is if the Federal Reserve supplied the money. So how could it not consider the implications on the federal budget in its policymaking? Of course it does. In fact, I know that one of the reasons that interest rates have been kept so low is precisely because the Fed considers the effect on the federal budget of interest rates. It is setting policy specifically with that in mind. It wants to help the government service its debts. And the only way it can do that is by artificially suppressing interest rates. Why do you think the Fed never raised interest rates from zero? And everybody was talking about how the economy was recovering after we started to reopen, after we got the vaccines, yet the Fed still got interest rates at zero. Why is it doing that? Well, one of the main reasons it's doing that is because it doesn't want to bankrupt the federal government. The federal government wants to spend more money on programs, not more money on interest on the national debt. So the way to subsidize increased government spending is to keep interest rates at zero. In fact, even long before COVID, one of the primary reasons that the Fed under several administrations and several Fed chairman, one of the reasons rates have been so low is precisely because the government has so much debt. But of course, no Fed chairman will admit that because if a Fed chairman admits that, well, then it's almost party over. It's going to roil global financial markets if you let that cat out of the bag. So Powell did what any Fed chairman would do. He lied about it, or he might say he didn't lie. He just sidestepped the question by not answering it. But he basically lied when he said he never considers the credit worthiness of the United States or that creditors might question the credit worthiness of the United States. He has to consider that because that's part of the consideration of the effect on the budget of rising interest rates. But you know, that wasn't even the most ridiculous thing that Powell said. One of the craziest things, and I'm not making this up, right? You can go on YouTube and you can watch the Senate hearing 
and you can see for yourself that I'm not just making this up, but there was a senator that asked Powell a question. And I'm not even sure why he asked him the question. It was just funny the way Powell answered it. But here's the question that was asked. He said, if rents go way up, but the U.S. government decides to subsidize those rent hikes by providing Americans with money to pay the higher rent, or the U.S. government just pays the rent directly to the landlord so that the tenant doesn't have to pay, so that the net effect to the tenant is that rent isn't really going up because the tenant isn't paying the higher rent. The government is paying the higher rent for the tenant. So let's say rents go up by 10%, but the rent that the tenant pays doesn't go up at all. But the rent that the landlord receives is 10% higher, but the money comes from the government, not the tenant. Then the question was, would the Federal Reserve consider that rents went up? Would it factor that into inflation? Because after all, if the consumer didn't actually pay higher rent, could the Fed ignore the rent increase in its inflation calculations? Now, the question doesn't even make sense because the answer is obvious. Like, of course not. How could the Federal Reserve ignore rising rents just because the government paid the rent instead of the tenant? And of course, if the government pays the rent, where is it getting the money? In fact, that's going to make inflation worse because the money is coming from the Federal Reserve. So the question, in fact, is asinine. And the only thing more asinine than the question was Powell's answer. His answer was, I need to get back to you on that one. That was his answer. Like, it's such a complicated question that he couldn't answer it. He needed to go back and consult his textbooks, like, you know, some kind of operating manual at the Federal Reserve to decide whether or not he would consider a rent increase to actually be a rent increase if the government paid the rent. I mean, how absurd is that? Why do you need more time to answer such an easy question? You just say, of course we would consider it inflation. It doesn't matter who pays the higher rent. All that matters is that the rent went up. In fact, the senator then asked the question rhetorically in a different way with respect to the price of a Thanksgiving turkey. He said if turkeys go up 14%, but then the federal government decides to pay the higher price for average Americans so that they don't feel the increase, and so the farmers get the money from the government and the consumer pays the same price, would the Fed consider that the price of turkey didn't really go up because the consumer didn't pay higher prices. And again, Powell needs more time to come up with an answer. It's like, you know, you're watching one of these game shows and it's like a real easy question. And then the guy's like, well, I got to phone a friend, right? Or whatever. I mean, (laughs) this was the slam dunk of a question. This was like a layup question that Powell could have easily answered. But I think Powell is so used to obfuscating and dodging questions that he was put on the spot. And so he didn't even want to answer this one even though it should have been such an obvious answer. And how harmful could it be to just admit that price increases are price increases regardless of who pays them? But Powell didn't even want to go out on the limb and say that. So he came up with this ridiculous excuse. Uh, I got to think about that. Uh, I'll get back to you later. I would love to see Powell's answer that after all the time he spends thinking about it, he's going to come up and give a written answer to that question. I really would like to see what he writes. But again, the question that I really would have liked to seen asked, and of course, I would have liked to see how Powell dodged it because there's no way he would have answered the question had any of the senators been smart enough to ask it. But the real question is, 
if the economy were to weaken and potentially fall into recession, or maybe the stock market goes into a bear market, but inflation stays at the current level, or maybe even goes higher, will the Fed still fight inflation? Will it use those unnamed tools right, to fight inflation, or will it ignore inflation and try to stimulate the economy? And in fact, if it chooses to fight inflation, but in so doing, it weakens the economy, it worsens the bear market, will it stop fighting inflation and instead turn its attention to the economy and the market? Or will it keep fighting inflation oblivious to the effects or regardless of the effects that it might have on the economy or the stock market? Somebody's got to ask that question because I'd really like to see how Powell gets out of answering it. Although he could just ignore it. I mean, that's generally what they do. The harder the question is, the less likely it is that it's going to get answered. And if you can't answer it, you just completely ignore it. Like you pretend that it wasn't even asked. In fact, the irony, too, of a lot of this is a lot of people now are concerned that the Fed may, in fact, fight inflation simply because it indicated that it's a threat, even though it's really given no indication that it's actually going to fight it, but it's pretending that it will. And now the market is starting to sell off because people are afraid that the Fed is going to stop propping up the market. The reality is, though, the more the market goes down because people are afraid the Fed's not going to be there, the more likely it is that the Fed will be there because the Fed believes that the market is a leading indicator of the economy. The Fed believes in the wealth effect. They believe you grow the economy by creating stock market wealth because that leads to more spending. Well, the corollary to that is if the stock market goes down, well, then you get less wealth and you get less spending and the Fed doesn't want that. But the reality is if the economy is going to relapse into recession, if economic output is going to decline specifically because of the Omicron variant or whatever, but if fewer people are working and if factories are producing less, we need consumption to decline. That has to happen. The Fed's efforts to stimulate the economy so that the government and consumers can spend more is not only misguided, it's counterproductive. It is harmful to the economy. In fact, I was watching earlier this morning, this is before Powell spoke, an interview with Ray Dalio on CNBC. And he was out there promoting his new book. I forget the name of it and I haven't read it. But he was talking about central bank policy responses to pandemics and how they may respond to this Omicron variant. And he specifically said that the playbook for central banks is to print more money. That whenever we have a pandemic or this type of economic event, the central banks are going to continue to respond using the same playbook, which is print more money. And he mentioned that the policy would not work in raising living standards. That in other words, by printing money as the economy is weakening, the additional money is not going to make anything better. That's what he meant when he said it's not going to raise living standards because living standards are falling in the recession as the economy is in lockdown, the standard of living is falling. And he acknowledged that central bank's policy of printing more money will do nothing to raise those living standards. What he did say that the policy will do instead of raising living standards was raise prices, which is true. So basically what Dalio was saying 
was that the only thing central banks will achieve in raising by printing more money during a pandemic is consumer prices. So all we're going to get from their efforts is inflation, which is true. But then it surprised me that Dalio didn't have any critical words to say about central banks in general or the Fed in particular for pursuing this policy. In fact, he seemed to excuse it like, hey, this is what they're going to do. And almost like, well, you know, they need to do it. They have no other choice. They're going to do it. The problem is it's not going to help. It's just going to cause prices to go up. They don't need to do it. Criticize it. And it's not like it just causes prices to go up. It actually worsens the problem. And I said this from the beginning. The minute we got the Fed's policy response and Congress to COVID, I said from the beginning that the Fed's cure was going to be worse than the COVID disease as far as from an economic perspective. And I've already been proven right. And we've just seen the tip of this iceberg as far as how much damage this policy has done. Dalio needs to criticize the Fed for this policy because it's not just a push. It's not like, okay, we're going to get more money, but prices are going to go up. It is doing severe damage to the economy, not just that prices are going up. It is screwing up the market mechanisms that need to play out during these time periods. When production declines, consumption needs to decline. If it doesn't, you are creating bigger problems in the economy. And I know what's ultimately going to follow as a result of this. We're going to get price controls. They're coming because how else are they going to deal with it? The politicians are going to blame greedy corporations or whoever it is for these price increases. And then they're going to try to have ways of insulating the consumer from those higher prices, either by controlling the price or providing subsidies. And that will do even more damage to the economy because when goods are in scarce supply, you want the market to ration those goods through the price mechanism so that people that really need the goods and have a viable economic interest in those goods, they'll get them and they'll pay higher prices. And other people that don't have as strong a need, they will cut back. They will economize and they will use less because the price has gone up and you'll get the most efficient allocation of those scarce resources. But when the government insulates consumers from the consequences of higher prices, and therefore nobody cuts back, then the people who really need the energy don't get it. And the economy is worse as a result. So all this is coming. All these policies are misguided. Guys like Dalio, who have a much bigger soapbox than I do, need to speak out against this policy. They can't just excuse the central banks, make excuses for them. They need to call them out. This is misguided. This is harmful. This needs to stop. He can't simply say, hey, this is going to be the way we're going to respond to pandemics. He needs to say, this is the wrong way to respond to a pandemic. Yes, the central banks may do it, but it is a mistake. It's going to make the economy worse. It should be resisted and specifically articulate why what the Fed is doing is wrong. Because you know what? Dalio knows it. Dalio understands that the Fed is making a mistake. Just have the guts to say it. What is he afraid of? Just tell the truth. I mean, nobody seems to want to tell the truth about anything. I mean, I'm thinking back again about 
Powell saying that, you know, we didn't have anything in our economic models that suggested that shutting down the economy, closing plants and furloughing workers would result in supply shortages. You don't need to have that in your economic model. I mean, that just goes without saying. I mean, why model something that is so obvious it doesn't even need a model? Yet, apparently, since it wasn't in the Fed's model, it it didn't consider it. Then there was this one senator who went out of his way to point out that African-Americans are twice as likely as whites not to go back to the workforce because of lack of childcare. Now, of course, this is irrelevant to Powell because there's nothing the Federal Reserve can actually do about the lack of childcare. But he then addressed his question to Powell by saying, hey, what are you guys doing about getting more diversification at the FOMC? Meaning that, hey, we have this problem that African-Americans have with getting childcare. And so are you looking for more African-Americans to be on the FOMC so they can help solve these problems, which of course is completely ridiculous because the problems can't be solved by the Fed. It doesn't matter what color you are. Monetary policy's got nothing to do with childcare. It's got nothing to do with the cost of childcare. I mean, it does in a way in that it has to do with the cost of everything because it's printing too much money. But the specific problems that are resulting in African-Americans being twice as unlikely to return to work due to issues with childcare have nothing to do with the Fed. They have everything to do with the government. Yet the question wasn't addressed to the Secretary of the Treasury, who again, That's not her problem either. She's the Secretary of the Treasury. She doesn't make policy that affects these issues. The question had absolutely no place at the hearing, yet this senator felt that he needed to make it, right, to show his constituents, he must have a number of African-American constituents, that he cares about their issues because he wants to make sure that there are more African-Americans on the Federal Reserve because supposedly the white people who are there are just refusing to do their jobs because they don't care about the African-Americans. And if we only had more African-Americans at the Fed, well, then the Federal Reserve can solve the problem of inadequate child care for African-Americans, which is ridiculous. It doesn't matter how much you care about African-Americans or what color you happen to be yourself. There's nothing you can do about it. But for some reason, senators believe that every problem in the country can be solved by the Fed, even the problems that are created by the government. What that senator needs to be considering is what he can do as a senator to solve this problem. Or more importantly, what is the Senate already doing to cause this problem and what policies that have been done can be undone? right? Don't blame the problem on the Fed. It's not the Fed's fault. And don't demand that the Fed solve it when the problem is your fault and you're the one that needs to solve it, but you refuse to do so because you want to scapegoat the Fed. And you're scapegoating the Fed because there's not enough African-Americans on the FOMC as if that would actually make a difference. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by talking a little bit about what Janet Yellen had to say, because I've spent the entire podcast talking about Jerome Powell, and I didn't really talk at all about Yellen. And one of the questions that was directed to Yellen that I want to discuss had to do with the Biden administration's proposal that is included in the Build Back Better bill that is supported by the Treasury Secretary. 
is this new power that the IRS is being given over banks. And initially, it was proposed that any transaction of $600 or more would be reported. And there was a lot of backlash about that, so they changed it. But the way they changed it, I think, is actually even worse. The way the legislation now reads is that any account that has over $10,000 of total transactions over a calendar year that the bank needs to report to the IRS all of the transactions in detail that occurred in that account. Now think about that. The bank account needs to only have $10,000 in total transactions. I mean, basically, anybody who has a full-time job, even if you're working at minimum wage, and you take your paychecks and you deposit those paychecks into your bank account, you are automatically going to have over $10,000 in transactions, which means every single transaction is going to be reported to the IRS. Now, first of all, how much is this going to cost the banks to comply with this rule? It's going to cost a fortune. And what that means is small accounts are going to have to be charged much higher fees in order to have bank accounts. And as a result, a lot more people are going to become unbanked because the cost of having a bank account is going to be so high because it's so expensive for the banks to comply that a lot of people are just not going to have accounts. And of course, a lot of smaller banks will not even be able to comply. And so they'll just go out of business, which means the larger banks will have less competition and it'll be even easier for them to make their increased prices stick because their customers will have fewer choices to go to other banks. So this is going to drive up the cost dramatically of banking. But this particular senator called out Janet Yellen and said, look, why are you doing this? Why does the IRS need information on transactions from people who are making minimum wage? You're saying that you want to go after the billionaires and the millionaires, right? You want to get the money from these wealthy tax cheats. Do you really need information on the accounts of low-income workers? And Janet Yellen's answer was, yes, we do. We need this information because we want to make sure that everybody is paying their taxes and they want to go after the people who are not, which is an admission finally from the Biden administration through Janet Yellen of something else that I said from day one, and that is the real purpose of enhanced IRS, more agents, more audits, more surveillance is to get the middle class and the lower income earners. Those are the tax cheats that are being targeted. People who work for minimum wage, people who are in the gig economy, small business owners, that's who the IRS is going after. You know why? Because that's where the money is. Again, like Willie Sutton, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do you go after middle-class tax cheats? Because that's where the money is. There's not a lot of money in going after the rich. Number one, there's not a lot of rich people. And number two, they're not cheating. They don't have to. There are plenty of ways for the rich people to legally avoid paying taxes. They don't have to cheat and they don't need to take a risk of cheating. The stakes are too high for them. They don't want to do that. So they're paying their taxes honestly, but they're honestly exploiting all the loopholes that they can afford to exploit. And they're hiring the best accountants to help them do that. 
the average guy, small business owner, gig economy worker, he doesn't have a bunch of tax breaks. And even if they were there, he can't afford to pay an accountant to find them. He's doing his taxes himself, or maybe he's doing them online with a program on QuickBooks or TurboTax or whatever he's doing. But the only way a lot of middle-class households can survive right now is by cheating on their taxes, right? Because they don't have any legal ways to minimize their taxes. So they go the dishonest route, right? They have income that they don't report. And that is what the IRS is looking for. The IRS wants to compare everybody's bank account with what they claim they earn. And they want to look at every check that you write and they want to look at all the money you're spending and they want to compare that to what you claimed you earned. And they're looking for a discrepancy. And if they find it, they're going to come after you. But of course, claiming that you need more IRS agents to go after the middle class and lower income workers, that's not going to win any votes. So you lie to the voters, you lie to the middle class by saying, no, 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 we need these IRS agents to go after the billionaire tax cheats, right? Really, they're going after the middle class tax cheats. This is all about making the middle class and the poor pay their fair share, not the rich, but you're not going to win any votes by being honest with the voters, so you have to lie. But the minute I saw this provision, I pointed this out, that this shined a light of truth on the con that they were trying to pull off because there is no way that they need this added information to go after the billionaires. They only need it to go after middle-class, small business owners, gig economy workers who are underreporting their income. But just to wrap this podcast up, though, I think that the sell-off that we had today in gold and the rally that we had in the dollar, even though the dollar index still closed down, it was way off the lows. Dollar index was down about 0.4. It was down twice as much before Powell acknowledged his era and the larger threat of inflation and buried the transitory narrative once and for all. But I think that is yet another opportunity to buy gold, sell the dollar, buy the mining stocks. The idea that the Fed is actually going to fight inflation is a farce. It's not going to fight inflation. It's going to create more inflation because that is the only choice that is viable politically to the Fed. They are not going to sacrifice the economy on the altar of fighting inflation. It's simply not in their DNA. They can't admit that. So they have to pretend that they're going to do something. But the key is to see through that pretense and to position yourself not for what people are pretending is going to happen, but for what's actually going to happen. (music) 